Turning to Luke chapter 18 tonight, Luke chapter 18, and we'll begin there in verse 1. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man, And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjudged unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he were he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Or we might say, will he find that kind of faith on the earth, this kind of of faith. Our example in all things is the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people, when you give that uh, precept, they say, well, what an example that is. He was perfect. He was the God-man. But in all things, again, our Lord is our example to live the Christian life, to show us spiritual things. We think of our Lord, the Lord Jesus prayed constantly. He lived out what he's telling us to do here, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. He prayed constantly, and you think our praying, the reasons for our praying, uh, so often focus on our needs and our sins and our shortcomings and those kinds of things, but that was not the, the impetus for our Lord's praying. He prayed constantly, though he had no sins to confess. I confess to you that much of my praying is repentance and confession of sin, and yet our Lord had no sins to confess. He is omniscient and had no need to ask for wisdom, as so often our requests are they not, Lord, show me what to do, what decision to make, where to go, how to live the Christian life. He never had to ask for wisdom. He had no inbred lust to struggle with as we do. He had no need of anything whatsoever. His praying was not out of need. And so, as we've mentioned that our Lord is our pattern in this area, we might ask, how in prayer is he our pattern? He drew near to his father incessantly with this, like a a magnet drawn to to, to metal. How much more, if that was what he did, and he felt this compulsion to do so, how much more should we who are absolutely frail and totally needful of all things come to commune with our Father in love and praise and adoration? Our Lord so kindly here gives us a precept here. He makes a statement there in verse 1, men ought always to pray. This is... A compelling thing. This is not a suggestion. This is not something, if you agree here, you might want to put it into practice. Or if you get around to it, you might want to consider what is Jesus Christ saying? Men ought always, and of course, there are men including everyone, men ought always to pray that ought there places an obligation upon the hearers of the precept. 
I'm glad that our Lord did not just give the precept, though, and leave us there. Because an obligation as such does not necessarily give us the the explanation of how to carry it out. Men ought always to pray. And then he tells us to what capacity, to what extent, and not to faint. Again, showing us that so much of our praying is fits and starts, isn't it? We pray for a while, and the Lord doesn't uh, answer that prayer, and so we leave off and just go on to something else. We're very uh, inconsistent, it seems, in this matter of praying, especially praying for people and their salvation and, and impossible situations that so often we, we call upon. And so we'll pray for a while, and it seems as if the Lord is not going to work, and we might leave that off. But what does Jesus say? Men ought always to pray and not to faint. And so he just doesn't end there, but he so graciously illustrates what he's saying. And what an unusual story he gives us here. He gives us the precept, and then in so often as he lovingly and graciously does, as the master teacher that he was, he illustrates it in uncertain terms. Now, a parable comes from the word para and bola, The word para means beside. We get our word parallel from. Something placed alongside something else. And the the bola is a verb which means to throw. And literally it means to throw something down beside something else uh, as a comparison. If I throw a, a... a measuring tape beside a table surface. I'm measuring how I put it alongside to see what the dimensions are. And that's what a parable does. It's placed alongside a precept or a spiritual truth to show us what it means. And yet so often I have heard this parable so horribly misinterpreted. We picture that God, I say we, often the Bible teacher will picture God as the unjust judge. Stop right there. <laughs> There's something wrong with this picture from the beginning, isn't it? Well, Brother Lamb, if, if this is a, a picturing of prayer and the widow is coming to the judge asking for something to be done, it, come, it just stands to reason that if, if the judge is the one who can meet her need and solve her problem, that God must be the judge and how hard-hearted he must be. He just lets us wriggle and finagle and squirm and wait a long time as if he were some cruel, cruel judge. Well, I will take us back to a precept that we long refer to here. In the prayer of Abraham, we learned that that's not the truth, don't we? What did Abraham pray when he interceded on behalf of his nephew Lot? Lord, we pray that you'd spare the cities there because shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham, in his testing and his experience, saw nothing in our God, our Father, that's unjust. And so God is not unjust. Now, a parable means something that is thrown beside something else to tell you something about the first thing, uh, by either by comparison or contrast. And the fault in this parable that, that some make is using this as a parable of comparison, God is not to be compared to the unjust judge. But the key to understanding the parable is that God is in contrast to the unjust judge. If you'll keep that in mind as you're studying the parables of Jesus Christ, and that would make a good Bible study in and of itself just to study his parables. And we'll have to put that on the agenda to get around to one day. The parable, the key to understanding parables, it is either a comparison 
or contrast. And so when you're studying the parable, you must ascertain whether this is comparing two things or contrasting. And the key word here that solves the whole matter is the word unjust. Oh, yes, God is a judge. Oh, yes, he has the power to grant or to say no or to work out the situation as we see here. But he is not unjust. And he is the opposite to what this judge is. So that, that interprets the parable before we even look at it more closely. Luke mentions widows more than any other of the gospel writers combined. You'll know that, remember that Luke was a physician. And he seems to have, beside the apostle John, a keen insight, a doctor's eye, an insight to detail and to the human condition. And Luke draws upon, uh, and some gospel writers would leave off some details that, that Luke does not. And it, we must remember that God uses the personality of the biblical writers as well as the, using them at all. He uses their personalities. And Luke, having that eye to detail, he often refers to widows. Widows in New Testament times or Bible times had a very difficult time providing for themselves, as has always been the case throughout history. In the New Testament times, there, I don't need to remind you, there were no social programs for widows, things that we are, see in our culture today. There was no aid. There, she had no son or she had no near kinsman. Uh, widows were often completely destitute. And I tend to think that this widow, because of her importunity, was a widow with young children. It's not just herself that she's pleading her cause. She has those to provide for. And I tend to think that there are children involved here, that she's begging for the judge to intercede not only on her behalf, but on behalf of her children that she has to provide for as the only breadwinner with no husband and limited means to do such. God's word has always addressed the treatment and the instructions about caring for widows. In Exodus 22, verse 22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. What a command. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot. What a verse. Psalm 146, verse 9, the Lord preserveth the strangers He relieveth the fatherless and widows, but the way of the wicked he turneth upside down are those that would mistreat those widows and fatherless people. Isaiah 1 verse 17, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. In her day, the judge was a circuit judge, no doubt, They would travel from town to town on a monthly circuit or a quarterly circuit. The judge would pitch his tent, set up his table. The the docket would have already been established, no doubt, or people would get up early in the morning to bring their cases for the judge to hear. Often the judge's preferences preceded the law. And though there was law, judges of this time were not beyond the the, uh, reach of money. And so often the case that would be heard, you know, would be the case that had the most money behind it. The public would come up to the tent 
around these open, the open tent, there was to be a, a tent around the edges. They could come and watch the proceedings. It would be good cheap entertainment, good free entertainment to see people pleading their cases. All the ramifications of human condition would be seen there, all from different strata of life. And this is the, the plight, or somewhat the picture of what we can see, this widow coming. I can see her getting up early in the morning. I think this is a real estate problem. And I think she has been encroached upon, not unlike uh, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Ahab uh, in getting Nadab's garden because he, he wanted it and his wife worked it out. I think, and we're surmising here, and we have to be careful here, but she's so desperate and she so continually comes to the judge. I picture, and if you will for me, this little simple little farm next to a wealthy landowner who decides to just include hers into his and just removes. Remember the Bible says, remove not the ancient landmarks. That didn't mean that sometimes people didn't remove the ancient landmarks. And so she's been wronged. The landmarks have been moved. It has been made to look like that her farm has been his all along. And, but she has her deed. She has her papers. And she is so insistent that she's right. So it must be something that she could prove. This man, this judge would have no inclination to hear at all if it was just, I've been wrong, what proof do you have? Are uh, you just, you know, just causing a problem? So it must have been a matter, a legal matter, real estate matter, some matter where she was horribly wronged, but she was in the right. She could prove it, and she would not have it any other way. The farm, the acre that it was, or whatever it may be, was all she had to live and to provide for her, her children, and she must be vindicated. I feel her pain, do you not? I, I can, I'm standing there outside the flap of the tent, and my heart goes out to this lady. Only cases that had been pre-approved would be tried, and she had nothing to commend herself, nobody, no thing, no money. How could she offer a bribe? And no doubt it was beyond her, her, her principles to do such a thing anyway. There was a long line of businessmen and, and, and cohorts and the good old boy system far ahead of her. And there she stood waiting patiently to be heard, to get her case heard. I want us to see tonight her problem. In verse, uh, verses two, 1 and 2, her procedure in verse 3, her persistence in verse 4, and then the Lord's promise in verses 7 and 8. We've already addressed her problem. She's a poor widow, no influence, no money for bribery, or anything to call the judge's attention to her but her voice, her cry. I can see her coming she came that first day, and he wouldn't even look her direction. At the end, when he pronounced the gavel, this day's hearing is closed, and we'll, we'll resume tomorrow. But, sir, my Lord, hear my case. I've been wronged. Avenge me of my adversary. Not a very flowery address to the court. She had no lawyer. Just eight words. Avenge me of my adversary. I think also it was a well-known case. I think everyone under that court a tent knew exactly why she was there and though she was poor and though she was a widow the rich landowner there there had swallowed up her farm uh, no doubt and i think it was something that it was common in the area people knew about it and they were waiting to see almost in a in a sport-like way what would uh, what would come of it it was no trivial matter to her her livelihood was at stake and she actually had a compounded problem 
problems are bad enough, but when there are very, various parts to the problem, it gets even more thorny. As a woman, she had little standing or influence in the courts. And so the judge may never choose to hear a woman's case. As a widow, she had no husband to go for her, or brother, obviously. She obviously has no one on earth because the, 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 the Lord does not make mention of anybody going with her to help her out in this matter. As a poor woman, she had no resources to hire a lawyer or someone to present her case. Our Lord is using this hard, seemingly impossible circumstance, this bleak picture, to teach us to pray. Her graphically problem, her problem graphically illustrates for us that no matter how difficult our situation may be, and there's not a person in the sound of my voice that doesn't have something graphic and difficult in your life. It may not be in the same category here, but it's something pressing in your life that only the Lord can do. The only person on earth that could help this woman was this judge to whom she was appealing. And the only one that can do anything about the situation that you're burdened about tonight is the judge of all the earth, the God of heaven. She came continually, persistently, urgent in prayer as she's pleading her case. We don't have to have money tonight to come to this judge's bench. We have the judge on our side. The judge is our heavenly father. Do you see the contrast here? There's no comparison to this judge, to God. In every point, he's the exact polar opposite of this judge. We don't have to have connections. We're invited to boldly come and to come right into the throne room. We don't have to have appointment. We don't have to have to stand in line at this prayer meeting tonight. Come, come with large requests, unspeakable requests, things that no one else wants to hear or it would be, you'd be embarrassed for them to hear. Our judge, our father will hear them all. We don't have to have connections. The throne room of heaven is open to our pleas. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, that has passed into heavens, he ascended into the heavens after his resurrection. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. This man could, care, could, could not care any less than he was caring for this lady. He had no regard for God. He was an atheist. Didn't, know that, didn't care there was a God in heaven. Or it doesn't get any worse than that, does it? I mean, he was not a God-fearing man. She couldn't plead to his, his conscience or to the God of heaven, do what's right according to God's word. He had no regard for the Bible. You may be in a situation, the people the, in the scenario, they could care less about your God or your principles or your situation. This judge had no care for that. He, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tested, tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us then come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Our advocate, we not only have the judge as our father, the advocate is our elder brother. Our lawyer is our elder brother. And he's passed all the tests, hasn't he? He passed the bar with flying colors. He is highly qualified to plead your cause. In fact, he's doing that even if you're not doing it. He's pleading your cause before the throne of grace, even as we meet here tonight. Isn't that comforting to know? Peter, Satan has gotten permission to sift you like wheat. But it's almost as if the Lord is saying, but have no fear. I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. You will repent, Peter. You will be made right. You will be useful in the Lord's work. He's praying for us when we don't care or don't know or don't see the gravity of our situation. 
Whatever her legal problem was, she had no earthly resources, no earthly favor, no apparent hope. Does that picture your case tonight? Well, good. We, this verse, this portion of Scripture is just for you, just for your situation. Aren't you glad that the Lord has a portion of Scripture for everybody and every possible scenario that you can come up with? What could she do? She could go and appeal to be heard. What can you do tonight? You can go to the prayer meeting and appeal your voice to the throne room of grace. You who are not here and out and wherever you are, you can go right to the Lord at this moment and appeal your case. She knew the law. Do you? Do you know whether you're pleading your case according to the will of God? Now, this judge had no um, obligation to hear a trivial case. He had no obligation to hear if her neighbor painted their house red and she didn't like it or whatever, some trivial case. Her case had to be based on the law. That's why it must have been something, as I pointed out to you, or he would never have heard it at all. It was something so clear, so obvious, so right to decide. It took him no time at all to belabor the decision, did he? He granted her her request. Would he have done that to a poor widow if it not had been a cut and dry, a a landline, a property line, someone seizing her her rights, her, her livelihood? She knew she was right. So I must tell you in this parable of prayer, are you right? Now, we must be right before we come to the throne of grace. We must have a case. It's not enough just to have a problem. We must plead it from the Lord's word. We must know what his word says about it and come and ask. We can ask boldly and to keep coming. Why did she keep coming? She knew she was right. It had to be. Her case had to be answered. She would never be justified. She kept asking. She kept seeking. She kept knocking. Isn't that what our Lord tells us to do? Our advocate says, ask and seek and knock that continual coming until the answer comes. She cried. Oh, her prayer is not a flowery prayer. You really couldn't say you're blessed by her, her, her speech here. She's not eloquent. Now, you've heard some, I'm sure you've watched some lawyer shows, some legal shows, and read some books, and the lawyer so uh, graciously and eloquently presents the case, and, and he proves with his words and sways the judge and the jury and all. All she could do is cry out, avenge me of my adversary, sir, sir, avenge me of my adversary. You and I have a great adversary, don't we? Do I need to remind you of that tonight? He he never rests. He seizes what doesn't belong to him. He would just as soon take your reputation as do anything. He would just as soon ruin your life and character, all you've worked for. He would just as soon wreck your life as anything. He doesn't care. He has no regard for you or where you came from or how, how nice you are. You have an adversary. Not only do you have Satan, but you have the world around you. He's no friend of grace. The world doesn't care about your plot, your, your plight, your situation. Your flesh is your own enemy. You are your own enemy tonight. Did you know that? The old man, the old flesh, that's probably, we, we probably ought to, although we shouldn't reverse biblical order, but in the matter of, of, of precedence, our flesh probably is the first. That it should be the flesh in the world and Satan, Satan gets blamed on so much that he's not even, he does a lot, don't, don't underestimate that. But your flesh, I would say, is probably a far greater enemy than, than Satan. He can only be in one place at a time, by the way. 
Your flesh is with you all the time, everywhere you go. And so we have a great enemy, a, a threefold enemy. But I want you to know the scripture, whatever Satan has, a, that's a counterfeit for our threefold advocate. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're no match for the, our adversary. This woman, she was no match to her enemy, whoever he was. These adversaries press against us every day, continually. She must have known and, and taken to heart the teaching of Proverbs 21, verse 1, that we so often quote here in our praying with the, the, the officials over us. The king's heart is in the Lord's hand. This judge's heart was in the Lord's hand, wasn't it? Her coming to the judge and the, the Lord moving his heart to answer on her behalf. Don't ever underestimate the power behind your pleading. The, Lord, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. That's the answered prayer. The Lord turns the tables, turns the situation, and he does what only he can do in glorious, glad-hearted answer to prayer. With God's word assuring her as her only recourse, she took it to heart, she took her case, and she did not give up on her case. Do you know what your problem is? The whole pur purpose of this parable is to tell us to keep on praying, not to faint. What is our precept to start with? Men ought what? Always to pray and what? Not stop praying. And the reason is we so often do. We faint. There's no hope. My, I, I'll never see an answer to this. If she'd stopped short of the final day she came, would she have had her land given back to her or whatever the situation was? What about your problem? Let's move from this widow 2,000 years ago to 2015 in your problem, your heart, and your life. Have you stopped praying over those matters that are pressing? Do you have a case that heaven's court needs to hear? Have you taken it to the righteous judge? So often we go to everyone and anybody and tell them all of our problems before we ever go to the Lord and tell Him. We look to human beings to solve our problems when the one who can do all things, and it's no problem for Him to solve our problems. He can move heaven and earth. He can move mountains of problems. He can slay giants that are standing in our way, breathing out threatenings to us. What is that giant breathing over your neck tonight? That habit, that situation, that problem it stares over you like Goliath of old, breathing out accusations and mockeries. You have a God in heaven who can send you your David to help you slay that giant. Our God is totally, don't miss it. Please don't go and miss this. Our God is totally unlike this unjust judge. Our God is the exact opposite. We're not comparing him to him. We're contrasting our God to this judge. Someone may be asking, what was our Lord teaching in this parable? Well, it's obvious he's, he's talking about praying. We've already covered that, that men are always to pray. And then he illustrates it with this widow's problem. And we see not only her problem, I want us to, to move along and see, secondly, her procedure. She didn't have a very uh, intricate plan, did she? And in fact, she didn't have plan B, C, D, E, F, and G. She had one plan. This judge must rule in my favor. It's the only recourse that I have. And she stuck to it. You see how we must persevere in prayer? Claim your verse. Know that you're right. And you say, Brother Lamb, how would I know such a thing? Well, we seek the Lord in knowing that we're right. 
we the, the Bible tells us the Lord will heal here. Uh, pray, we pray in the Father's will. He'll always hear us and answer us. So we must align our praying with what the Lord teaches in his word of what he will, he's willing to do. If I'm praying for something that, that's against the will of God, he'll never hear that request. If I'm asking the Lord to grow a third arm or some ridiculous thing. There are all kinds of things that people name and claim. Just because you claim something doesn't mean that's God's will for you. Is it right? Do you need it? Is it something that the Bible teaches that you should have? Or this case that needs to be settled? This poor lady kept presenting her case. She didn't faint. Think of what energy it took. She came a great while. We don't know how long the while was, but it was more than one time. It was more than one day. I kind of believe that the judge was in session at least a week in this area hearing all the cases, you can rest assured he didn't hear on the first day, did he? Or the second day, or the third day. I think it was one of the last things he did before he packed up. Now, I want you to look at what the judge says. I'm going to skip on down to the good part where he says, do it, give her what she wants, lest by her continual coming, in verse 5, she weary me. Do you know what that means? Now, this man was a hard-hearted hearted judge. He'd seen everything under the sun. I mean, you don't just go into a court case and say something that the, the judge has never heard before. Her, it was not that her case was unusual or fascinating or that her wrong was so bad that he'd never seen anything like that before. Why? Is, is it because he loves widows? Is it because he, he loves justice? None of the above. He doesn't love God or believe there's a God, and he doesn't care about her plight. What is it that he does love? What is it that he's willing to concede on? He loves himself, doesn't he? Do you know the word wearing there, what he's really saying? Give her what she needs or she'll shut up unless she gives me a black eye. Not a literal black eye. He just didn't want to look bad in the public eye. And this woman kept coming. The people knew the case. They knew that she should be avenged. They knew her case was right. He answered her request because he didn't want to look back. The only thing that, that really mattered to him was his reputation and how he thought of himself. Lest she weary me, lest she give me a black eye, and I don't want to look bad in the community. Well, the word faint there, we ought to pray and not faint, is to fail in our heart. It's not getting tired physically so much as it's just giving up heart to grow weary, and ceasing to do what we started out to do. There are many who start out in the Christian life who are on the sidelines tonight. You've been wronged. Circumstances in life have been gone toward you that are not right. And you've just given up heart. And you've bought into the, the lie of the devil that everyone's rotten and no one is right and there's no answer to your case and, and uh, things are not what they ought to be and you, you're grown weird. You've given up, which is exactly where Satan wants you to be. He wants you, if you're saved, not to enjoy your salvation, not to be fruitful, not to be effective, not to be in fellowship with the people of God. He's got you right where he wants you to be. It means to start out but not finishing, to lose heart because the problems are so big, so overwhelming, the hardships or the afflictions are so great. Do I have the right congregation tonight? It's easy to faint. I mean, it doesn't take any talent to faint, does it? It's hard to keep persistently carrying on. Any can give up and say, this is just not going to work out, it's too hard, nobody cares, I'm just going to stop. It's very probable because of our humanity and even because of our laziness, let's face it, to give up, to give in.
because all the forces seem to be against us. The psalmist said, though, morning and at evening and at noon will I come. I think she was there first thing in the morning when they broke for the noon recess. She stayed through the noon recess. She bought a piece of bread and cheese to eat. When he opened up again in the afternoon, there she was. Avenge me of my adversary. Ma'am, are you on the docket? Avenge me of my adversary. She'd plead with the, the court clerk. Avenge me of my adversary. When he got ready to, 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 to end the cases for that day, then she cried out at last, Avenge me of my adversary. He walked off hard-hearted. And again and again it would start. Hearken to the voice of my cry, the psalmist said. Psalm 9, verse 12. Oh, Lord, attend to my cry. Isn't that what these psalms saying? The same thing. Avenge me. Psalm 34, verse 15. His ears are open to their cry. And Jeremiah 33, verse 3, that famous verse that we quote so often. Call unto me. When I was a boy in our neighborhood where we lived, all the boys in our neighborhood, when they came to your house to, 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 to want you to come out to play or play ball, they would just call your name. They didn't knock on the door. They just hollered out there, Chris, come out, you know. It was odd, I know, but that's just the way they did. You didn't ever go, go and knock. I don't know if it was uncool or whatever. We just wouldn't go and just holler until the person came out. My father, he didn't have past probably a, a fifth grade education and was from the, the country, born and raised on the farm, and that's all. He, he was just as country as they come. I remember him saying, you, you're not going outside unless somebody not, didn't have the decency to knock on the door and, you know, we're not heathen. And I tell them to knock on the door. And that, so it's just pitiful about them there calling, just hollering outside calling. But my friends would keep on. They'd keep on calling until we'd come out and, uh, or, or whatever. That, that, that desperateness, call, come. The Lord tells us to call on. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Now I want you to look in verse 7 at our Lord's promised assurance that he hears and answers prayer. And shall not, he's asking us a rhetorical question. When Jesus asks us a question, it's a statement of fact. All right? Would you just put that in your information place? Shall not God avenge his own elect? Is that you? If you're saved, you're his elect. Will God always plead your cause and take up for him, for you? Oh, yes, he will. Which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. She had an overwhelming problem. Her continual unfailing procedure was to cry aloud. That's all she had was her voice. Her problem and her voice. Her resources are meager. But you've got that much resources, don't you? In fact, you have a whole Bible, some 30,000 promises you can plead. For every kind of possible situation you could come up with. Her problem, and she came to the proper authority. To the one who, who have, don't you hate to stand in line in bureaucracy only to find out after a day of standing in line you're in the wrong line? Oh, you should have been at that door right down there. Nobody told you. You thought you were right. You, or you thought you had the right paperwork. You had it all but one little pity thing that, that you thought that would never be the thing I need. Oh, you must have that as well. And you, keep, you have to go back home or go back, and it's, it's so disheartening. Her situation was worse, much worse than that. The third thing we see is her persistence. Her continual coming, the Holy Spirit records here for us. I can see her getting up before daybreak, can't you? I can see her probably having to, to bring her little children with her if she has little ones at home. All the problem of a mother with little ones, whatever age they were, standing in line, waiting to be heard. 
She had heard the judge would be in, in town. He was pitching his tent. She saw them putting the tent up. She had to have her case settled. She got ready. She rehearsed her case. She'd be the first one there. Avenge me of my adversary. Here it is. I'm right. She had the proof. She knew she was right. Her case, well known. The judge's assistants didn't have to be bribed about its finer points. It was clear cut. There was no, nothing to be bribed about. We have precedence for this, do we not, for ourselves? We, Romans 12, verse 19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, or let God have his way. Because it is written, and he's quoting, uh, Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. He, the apostle himself is quoting a Bible verse. In this promise that he's giving to us, Vengeance or revenge is mine, saith the Lord. And what is the assurance? What is the guarantee? I will repay saith the Lord. Not saith Chris Lamb. Not saith some organization. I will repay, saith the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, where Paul is quoting, says, to me belongeth vengeance. He owns it and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people when he seeth that their power is gone. When you faint physically, you pass out of consciousness for a period of time. You, you aren't aware. You are disabled when you faint. And our Lord says that this is a spiritual possibility, just as is a physical po possibility to faint, that we can lose our sharpness, our keenness, our, our right thinking when we're in a spiritual fog and we don't ask as we should. We ask amiss. The only antidote for this is what? Continual coming. Continual praying. The only antidote for prayerlessness is praying. The only antidote for building of faith is to keep praying and asking your request. The actual coming, the actual persisting in your praying will build your faith. The only antidote for this is always praying. Praying always. The world around us is like a rotting corpse that affects us. We feel there's no hope. It affects our spiritual lives. The stench of the sin around us reaches us, and it, it causes us to, be, to, to faint from time to time. But when we pray, the atmosphere is cleared. The heaven comes down. And the doors of heaven are open, and we're escorted right into the vestibule and the very throne room of the Lord. Praying without ceasing means continually being in an attitude of prayer, being ready to prayer, always being... Remember there in Nehemiah when he was able, the king asked him, he had a case, he, he wanted to come back and, and build Jerusalem's walls. And the king asked him what was wrong. He had just a split second to answer and he prayed. He, he breathed a, a, just a, a short prayer, the Bible tells us. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. Lord, help me. That's a prayer. Lord, help me know what to say. Someone asks you a question, you shoot that up to heaven. Lord, help me know what to say. Give me wisdom. Lord, help me. One of the most prayed prayers of all is, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Be ready to pray. That prayer should be as natural as breathing. If we don't decide to breathe, it's as natural and uncomplicated as anything we do. In fact, if you start thinking about breathing, breathing then it gets complicated, doesn't it? We don't think about our heart beating or, or breathing. And that's what prayer should be. We see lastly here. Our Lord's promise. I love promises. This is what we live on. 
Isn't our salvation based upon the promise of the Lord? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All that we have to do with our spiritual life is based on precedent. Now, in law, precedence is everything. Judges decide on precedent. Certain cases will set a precedent for others. And we have this whole book is a book of precedent. What he's done for, for Nehemiah and, 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 and for uh, Elijah, they're given to us for examples, aren't they? the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Who's he talking about? Elijah's example. So we have precedent. This poor little widow had no idea that she would be immortalized in the scriptures for being a precedent to keep on praying until the answer comes. If a poor widow without resources got her case settled, can't you see her running down the street? Can't you see her with her deed in hand? Praise the Lord. Skipping and shouting that the case was settled. Or she may have been so overwhelmed she just wept all the way home with her head bowed in praise. How much more as we, as God's children, receive what is right according to his word from a loving heavenly father. Not an unjust judge, a loving heavenly father. This widow had no access to the judge, nothing to commend her, we have access, don't we? In every invitation to come, she had no representation. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, pleading our case. He's our heavenly high priest. In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful, faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. We can claim promises that we find in the scripture and bring our case before the Lord. God is not like this judge, praise his name. In fact, he is our heavenly father, willing, ready, wanting to hear our case. He answers prayer for his glory and for our good. But we might ask, and I know this is the the question that's haunting all of us tonight, but why does he wait to answer? Even the promise has that in it, doesn't it? Shall not God avenge his own elect? which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with him. Why, Brother Lamb? Why does he bear long? Why does he wait? Why does she come so often? Why does he delay? In our humanity, our Heavenly Father's waiting frustrates us. It's like the little boy who's the daddy said, yes, we'll go to the park and, and, and play ball, but it's not time. I can't, I've got to get finished with this project. I've got to, take, got to take care of this phone call. And when I get through, is it time yet? Is it time yet? The little boy keeps coming. Why does he wait? To him, as if daddy has all the time in the world, he's just making him wait. But the daddy has pressing things he's got to get done before he can do that which he's promised to do. He's working out scenarios and situations that the little boy, he may be uh, working out the very car payment that'll help them get in the car to go to the park to, to play ball. And the child has no con- concept of all the things that, the, that his father is working out on his behalf. God's waiting is not inactivity on his part. The children think that, don't they? They think that mom and dad's just sitting there doing what mamas and daddies do, wasting their good time, and it's just mean and cruel. But this is never the picture of God. His inactivity is not... Uh, is, is, is not, his waiting is not inactivity. God is always at work. His silence is not that he's not speaking. In what seems like delay, he is acting behind the scenes in a trillion ways that we could never understand to bring that request to pass. Preparing what we cannot see or know 
God is always at work on his part, even when it doesn't seem like it or when it doesn't feel like it. Romans 8, 28 assures us of that, doesn't it? He's at work all the time in everything, causing all things to work together for good to, the, to accomplish his purpose. The moment we send him a request that is in his will, God begins his work. In fact, in his omniscience, he begins to work before we ask. I will answer before you call. Haven't you had a need and you went to the mailbox and the letter was there or you found out that the request was already answered before you had even the time frame and all that was worked out before you even breathed the prayer before the Lord? We may not see it now, but one day the answer will come. I read about a man who it was a picture of godliness. He was a godly man, loved the Lord, but he had five boys. They were hellions. It broke his heart. Not one of them knew the Lord. And it grieved him. And on his deathbed, he called his sons to his deathbed. And he wanted to make one final appeal to them to, to repent and believe on the Lord. And he called them there. And yet, in that split second, he had such agony of heart and mind. He, he did not want them to think that dying was hard or that living for the Lord was any regret. And he was afraid at how he would present his last request to them. And so he just said, he just made an appeal to them to, to turn to the Lord and believe on him. And then he died. He didn't see the answer to his prayer, but his deathbed scene and his last words to them so worked in those boys' life that every, the oldest boy called his brothers to prayer. They'd heard the gospel. They'd been raised in a believing home. They'd heard the Bible read. And every one of them believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. The Lord asked a most troubling question. It's one of the most perplexing questions in the Bible. And I can't even begin to tell you that I fully understand this question that he closes with in this parable. When the Son of Man cometh, not if, church, Aren't you glad he doesn't say if the Lord decides to come back again? What does he say? When he comes. So he's coming. When he comes. What a question. Will he find this kind of faith on earth? Prayer meetings are rarely attended. Prayer is the hardest work in our our own life. And I wonder if the, the treasures of heaven are backed up with things that God would do. Blessings he would shower on his church. Revival he wants to give. Do you know that God wants to do for us far greater than what we we want? He wanted the children of Israel to possess all of Canaan. They never possessed over a tenth of it. Was God not willing? Could they not drive out the giants? What about Jericho? Their first battle was such an example of what God would do. The walls just fell down before them. Was it that God wasn't able? Was it that he didn't want them to have? And your Christian life is Canaan. He wants every giant slain. He wants every walled fortress to be brought down. What is the answer? Continual coming. Will he find that kind of faith? Do we see it today in our own church? Do you see it in your life? Faith like this widow's? Therefore, will the Lord wait? He will wait. That he may be gracious. and Not that he's mean and callous that he can be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. She was blessed, wasn't she? She got her case settled. There's nothing like a settled case. Oh, how happy she was when the judge said, give her what she wants and get her out of here. He, He said it probably with cursing, but it was absolute music to her ears. 
her case was settled. Charles Spurgeon has a wonderful sermon on this portion of Scripture, and he closes with this admonition to us in his inimitable way. If you are sure it is the right thing for what you're asking, plead now. Plead at noon. Plead at night. Plead on. Plead with cries and tears. Spread out your case before him. Order your arguments. Back up your pleas with reasons. Urge the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Set the wounds of Christ before the Father's eyes. Bring out the atoning sacrifice. Point to Calvary. Enlist the crown prince, the priest who stands at the right hand of God. Resolve in your very soul that if Zion do not flourish, if souls be not saved, if your family be not blessed, if your own zeal be not revived, yet you will die with the plea on your lips and with the importunate wish upon your spirit. Oh, may we come with our questions and our problems and our requests. John Newton said, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray, therefore will he not say thee nay. And remember, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions to him bring, for his grace and his power are such that none can ever ask too much. Does a little fish in the water worry about drinking too much water? And floating around in the sea, does a little sparrow wonder if he's going to use up the oxygen? When Does God's creatures think there's not going to be enough? God's grace... And his supplies are unlimited. They were for Elijah. They were for Jonah. They were for Nehemiah. And they are for us today.